Hi, I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Catherine Schutzer on geriatric palliative care and the use of nutraceuticals. Dr. Catherine Schutzer graduated from the University of Queensland with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science in 1995. She's had an interest in integrative and herbal medicine since vet school and has pursued training in veterinary acupuncture, energy medicine, herbal medicine and nutraceuticals. Dr. Catherine has spent the large part of her veterinary career in northern India, Bhutan and Tibet, where she helped set up the charity Vets Beyond Borders, coordinating several welfare programs for which she won the 2009 Young Alumni of the Year Award from the University of Queensland. Her veterinary clinical focus is on acupuncture, herbal and integrative medicine, as well as geriatric medicine and palliative care. She is now home in Australia, finishing a PhD in traditional Tibetan veterinary medicine while practicing at the Natural Vets on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. Hi, Catherine. It's so nice to have you as our guest today. I've really been looking forward to doing this podcast with you for um, quite a bit of time now. So I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, it's our pleasure. So, um, Catherine, so today's episode, we are focusing on geriatric and palliative care. But before we get into the main topic, there were just a few things that I wanted you to share with us today. So, I suppose to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you want to become a vet? And then what attracted you to sort of take a more holistic view um, and change the way in how you manage your your patients? Well, I've always wanted to be a vet, if you'll ask my family. I We grew up with lots of pets and animals around and I've always wanted to work with animals. And then that translated to, oh, well, you're going to be a vet then. So it was <laughs> almost a foregone conclusion <laughs> that that was what I was going to do. And it still is what I most, um, the most juicy part of my life, the thing that gives me the most um, uh, rewards and pleasures out of in all the jobs I've tried to do, because I've tried to do other things, <laughs> everything from a rock climbing instructor to running environmental education and Also and completely n- and, not vet related yeah, jobs. Yeah, but I always come back to vet because it, it is the most fulfilling thing to do. And then the traditional medicine, I was always interested. And in fact, when I was at vet school, I went to some natural therapists in Brisbane while I was still studying to find out a little bit more about it. But of course, we didn't get any training in any um, integrative medicine at vet school. So that then started a journey of self-education and discovery um, in various modalities over the years. And of course, there's so many modalities that in the human medical field, you would just become one of those things. You would become a chiropractor or a Chinese herbalist or an acupuncturist or a a rehab myotherapist or um, a Western herbalist or a naturopath. But seeing as OVET is such a, I guess, a limited, um, restricted profession still, (laughs) 
if you're working as integrative medicine, you end up having to train and do a lot of those modalities yourself. So you become a one-size-fits-all multi-therapist. Yes. Um, and, and so as I've built on one on top of another, it, it's been addictive because every new modality you bring to this integrative approach, you see better results. And so then you're looking, well, what's the next thing I can add in that will help my patient? When you started studying different modalities, did you, uh, or being interested in um, sort of integrative medicine, did you did you have a mentor or did you sort of just made the decision, oh, I'm going to start learning this and then go on to herbal medicine and then go on to acupuncture? <laughs> um, so I've had many teachers and mentors over the years, both when I was locuming in the UK and back in Australia. And now that everything's online, we have this strong integrative veterinary community that helps each other out it's transnational that we can post on online and ask about cases and get feedback and suggestions from other vets no matter where they are which is great but there were definite uh, vets who I guess pioneered the field in Australia who are now at the towards the end of their career um, or even retired, who were some of the earlier practitioners in Australia, and they've really helped a lot of us younger vets. I say younger, haha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not young anymore, but <laughs> a lot of us newer vets to um, get started and always be there and so generous with their time to help us, help us out. And I'm working for one of those at the moment where I'm working in Queensland. Um, Dr. Henry Stevenson was one of the earlier vets and I actually worked for him about 15 years ago for a while when he was in another practice and learned a lot from him then and then I headed off to India for a long time and now I'm back. I'm back working for him again, which is delightful. Yeah, it's it's lovely to have that community and support, especially when you're, you know, trying to learn as much as you as you can. Yeah, yeah. And there is so much to learn. That's the thing, you know. You really it's never ending. <laughs> yeah, and and it's fabulous now that science is starting to catch up. That we can not only look at what is useful, but why it's useful. What are the pathways involved? What's the biochemistry? What's the interactions? What's the you know, herb drug interactions? There's so much new research coming out that's really helpful. And um, you've touched on uh, before that you worked in in Asia so and I know you've spent many years working in in Asia so can you tell us some of the work that you did overseas and what what drew you to spend um, such a large part of your career there so I started going to India I was originally going to China to work with the um, some of the bear rescue organizations but then the SARS epidemic happened and that closed those doors so I just changed my ticket to India and went and helped out some local charities and then became hooked. <laughs> I think you you either love or hate India. <laughs> I've heard that before. <laughs> get addicted and keep coming back. Um, and while there I found, went to the Himalayas and Dharamsala particularly and just fell more in love. It's, it's, it's such a vibrant, fascinating place and so spectacularly beautiful. And that that led me to want to go and live there. While I was there and helping different vet programs, we were starting Vets Beyond Borders around the same time and implementing programs, which being on the ground in India 
helped because I could go and visit and make the connections and assist in program management or working out deals with the government to partly fund some of the street dog work we were doing. And that built on from there. Uh, So while I was living there, then I wanted to study Tibetan medicine Mm -hmm. and Tibetan language and Tibetan Buddhism. So I lived in a nunnery for a while while I was studying that and then continued to live nearby the nunnery and go to the classes that they were holding there. And it just, one thing led to another, led to another. And before you know it, the decades passed (laughs) (laughs) and you've been having all this fun you haven't noticed (laughs) and, um, and have so much community there because it's quite, quite different. The street life and the community is so supportive and vibrant takes you half an hour to walk down the street because everyone wants to stop and have a cup of tea and talk about how things are, and um, including the dogs. The street dogs get to know you. <laughs> so you meet a human, then you meet a dog, then you meet a human, then you meet a dog, and you have to stop and say hello to all of them. <laughs> yeah. So it's safe to say that you, you know, fell in love. Totally. With, with, yeah, with the area, and that's why you stayed so long. Yeah, I did. And we were doing really amazing work with Vets Beyond Borders and the programs there. And then when I started my PhD research, um, I I sort of had to be there as well to do the research and um, a lot of the field work. So th- talking about your, your PhD, so I... Um so you're saying you you started it um, there, and I know you're doing a PhD on Tibetan veterinary medicine. Um, can you talk us through that exactly? What what you're studying, and if you've been doing for that long, what your findings have been so far? Well, well before I moved to India, I did a um, postgraduate certificate course in traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture in Australia. And so had started practicing as an acupuncturist and had studied Chinese medicine um, theory and philosophy. And then when I started studying Tibetan medicine, I was looking around going, well, where's the Tibetan veterinary medicine? Because I knew that India has this huge, huge literary and practical history in treating animals with herbs and with Ayurvedic medicine. And so does China. There's texts going back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, Some of the earlier texts are over a thousand years old. So as Tibet on the plateau is in between China and India and has such a dependence on animals, I was sure that there would have to have been a vibrant veterinary history and, and practice lineage in Tibet. But no one knew about it. It seemed to be um, extant, extinct. There, No one could tell me if there were texts or practitioners still. And so I thought, well, I'm studying Tibetan medicine for people. Really, someone needs to be finding out if there's a Tibetan medical tradition for animals. So that started my journey. Mm-hmm. And in the process, I've collected 30-something texts, both traditional and from this century, uh, from the 20th century, right. on treating animals. And in between other human Tibetan medical texts, there's some comments and chapters on animals as well. So with a bit of digging and compiling, 
found quite a large resource. And in part of that resource, um, some of the introductions talk about the history, which dates back to around the time the institutionalisation of Tibetan medicine started, which is around the 8th to 9th centuries. So it's apparently been a, a, a vibrant network of practitioners for a long time, but it's um, disappearing. When wow. I was went to Tibet and looked around, I found only a couple of small pockets of anyone actually practising it in in the field in reality as as veterinarians yes there's lots of just village level medicine if you like that herders and farmers learn things from their parents that they then put into place but not an institutional codified tradition of medicine as such so and did you learn quite a lot that was specific to tibetan veterinary medicine that um you hadn't come across before in your studies so I guess because my research was more of the social science side of it, I didn't analyse the, the the actual techniques and medicines and herbs and the way that the in a way that could be used. That's for the next generation of researchers. <laughs> <laughs> my job was just to find out does it exist and what is it, and then and then find out if it works and how they do this and that and so on is the next step. But as part of um, the work. I was invited to Bhutan by the Royal Government of Bhutan to undertake field work on their medical veterinary traditions in Bhutan as part of my PhD as well. Then they actually wanted to know what people did and how they did it because the government wanted to start in producing their own traditional veterinary medicines so that they could become more self-sufficient in treating their animals in the field and help the farmers and herders do that. So I, I conducted a more extensive field work survey in Bhutan with herders and farmers and herbalists and went plant hunting in the jungles in southern mm. Bhutan and up on the Tibetan plateau in the northern areas of Bhutan as well and conducted an ethno-veterinary survey and logged about <laughs> hundred and eighty species of medicinal ingredients right. that are used across Bhutan by different people, not the same people using every one, mm-hmm. but um, in total quite a diverse large number. A lot of that those species are culinary herbs, um, different mineral medicines, things that are very commonly found in the Indian Ayurvedic traditions and the Chinese tradition. Mm-hmm. And that's not surprising because of the the trade in medicinal ingredients across all those areas. There's there's centuries, if not millennia, of, of medicinal trade routes across Central Asia. So a lot of the knowledge of the use of plants has been moved around with those trade routes. And so it's I'm not surprising that they're using them there, similarly to other areas. And some species that were particular to Bhutan as well. Uh, it, it sounds like such an amazing experience. I can, I can definitely see why you spent <laughs> so long there. Um, yeah. And just so, you know, interesting to learn their, um, what they used. And, um, yeah. But, it, you know, I just touched the tip of the iceberg. Yes, there sounds is so like much it. work to do. So if anyone's listening <laughs> that wants to do any postgraduate research in this field... <laughs> 
Oh, you might have some people There's knocking on your door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the sad thing is, though, the practitioners that I met and the people with the knowledge, this is the last generation. It's not It's not being passed on. Yeah. So if it's not archived in this generation, all that knowledge will be lost. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you mentioned that. You said there, there's only um, a handful of practitioners still and um, my question was going to be what, what, what's going to happen in the future? Is that going to be passed on to, you know, to other vets? But I suppose we'll have, to, mm. <laughs> have to wait wait yeah. and be hopeful. Depends how many people put up their hands to go and do some more research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so true, so true. Oh, no, it sounds amazing. What a fantastic experience that that you had. Mm, it, it was. And now I know, um, you know, you've done, you know, so much, but you also have a soft spot when you're practicing for, you know, geriatric patients. So yeah. you're elderly pets. Mm. Um, so now in practice, you know, what 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 are the most common issues that you get presented with when you when you see your geriatric uh, patients? So the geriatric veterinary aspects are very similar to humans. The body starts wearing out and, and is subject to all those years of um, inflammation and degenerative processes. So we very commonly see degenerative joint disease, arthritis, um, neural inflammation and and chronic pain conditions. Then there's a lot of problems that are preventative, like dental disease. Uh, over time, as the dental decay becomes more advanced, that gets worse and worse. So you're more likely to see advanced dental disease in animals in their teens than in the younger years if they haven't been properly managed when they were younger. The other thing you commonly see is the start of the cognitive decline or doggy's mm. as we like to call yes. it. And that those um, problems and issues that come with cognitive decline, like um, sundowner syndrome, restlessness at night, vocalising inappropriately or toileting inappropriately, um, confusion um, and so on. So they're probably the most common things. Of it- course, every animal is different and they have their own set of inbuilt problems that come with them no matter what age they are and but they tend to get worse as they age as well yeah and mobility problems that come with the the mm, decline in the muscles and and the the joint disease or nerve problems from spinal disease yeah, and I think um, for pet owners, um, those mobility issues, you know, they're, they're quite obvious. I mean, the cognitive dysfunction ones can be quite obvious, but I feel like maybe do you find that pet owners kind of not ignore, but, you know, turn a little bit of a blind eye to those signs when the, um, the pets start showing a bit of old age symptoms? Yeah, they, they well, to a point. They do because they just think it's a symptom of ageing and that there's nothing you can do about it. But when it starts to disrupt their life, like an animal vocalising all night and they're not getting any sleep or inappropriately toileting yes. and, and urinary and faecal incontinence or um, those sorts of problems, then they might reach out for veterinary help. 
Yeah, and um, like I said, some of them might be a little bit preventative, like dental disease, but um, with, like you mentioned, with arthritis and the cognitive dysfunction, how how do you approach those cases in a holistic um, way? Do you, you know, use a combination of modalities or do you try something first and each case is different? How, how, do, you, how do you approach them? Well, in some ways, those conditions are preventative as well. So if you can get the animal young enough and set in place a healthcare plan that addresses sources of inflammation in the body early on before it becomes chronic and and sort of stuck in the body, Um, look at their diet and their lifestyle and their exercise regimes and other issues like anxiety, which is just endemic in the pet population Mm. everywhere then you can, to a large degree, delay the onset of a lot of those degenerative diseases and in some cases prevent it. I've seen a lot of dogs that are in their 16, 17, 18, and they're perfectly fine and don't need any medicines. Wow. So it's, <laughs> it's, it, it is in some ways preventative, like we're learning about in human health that so much of our health problems can be preventative with good diet, lifestyle and preventative medicine. So in the first instance, if I saw a dog in its middle ages that's starting to show signs of um, joint pain or any signs of degenerative joint disease on on radiology, I would start with nutraceuticals and body work. So even as simple as fish oil or mm-hmm. some of the the different joint supplements that have your glycosaminoglycans, your New Zealand grindlet muscle extracts, your high-dose omega fatty acids, krill oils, and um, a lot of those joint supplement type formulas. Starting them on those and then depending on the degree of pain or inflammation, looking at other sources of inflammation in the body. So addressing their dental health can help. Yeah. And um, changing their diet can help. With the, um, like you're talking about fish oil um, and krill oil and green lip to muscle, um, do you um, select a different one depending on the severity or how, how do you choose? It's a combination of what else is going on in the body. So if they, if it's just degenerative joint disease, I might pick a commercial formula that just has a combination of those things to have to make it easier for the owner and more cost-effective. If they've got a degree of of arthritis going on along with early-stage renal failure, I might use a different combination of things. Um, So, But generally, I would choose a product that's easy for the owner so you've got Mm -hmm. compliance and not too expensive (laughs) if possible because you do end up layering other things over time. So you've got to keep an eye on the, the financial bottom line for the client as well. And then I would these days tend to pick something that's got a combination of green lip muscle and a fatty acid source in it and in a single source product. And and then for let's say for cognitive dysfunction, um, do you go? Um, what what do you usually try to start them with? The cause of cognitive dysfunction can be varied, and we have so little research on that in the veterinary field as compared mm-hmm. to the human field that we're extrapolating a lot from human research and human medicine. But 
we've got to start to try to peel away some of the contributing factors to cognitive decline. And one of them is co- chronic pain. One of them is anxiety. Mm-hmm. And one of them could be um, sources of chronic inflammation in the body as well, like dental disease, for example. So there's a combination of factors to consider. You're looking at underlying issues. You're addressing pain control and pain management. You're looking at lifestyle factors. And then there is a whole swathe of of nutraceuticals and herbs and medicines. And depending on which modality you're more comfortable with, you would choose probably a different combination of those. So I use a lot of Chinese herbs and acupuncture. So Mm -hmm. I would tend to um, use a lot of Chinese herbs and ones that I know that increase the SSRIs in the brain and uh, neuroprotectors and as well as some of the nutraceuticals like your fish oils um, and uh, different anti-anxiety herbs, withania, for example, PEA we're using a lot more of nowadays. That's becoming more popular, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's great with animals because it hits a lot of their chronic geriatric conditions. It's got published research showing it's effective in anxiety disorders, in pain, in IBS. Um, So there's a lot lot of things that it can help. Skin disease, atopy. It reduces the itch in itchy dogs. So it does does target a lot of problems without having side effects, which is very which nice. Especially when they're elderly. You don't want yeah. many, too many side effects. Well, you don't want any if no. you can <laughs> manage it. Exactly. And one of the things that was very important that you were talking about is owner compliance and, you know, making sure you're looking at cost because at the end of the day, you've got to recommend something that the pet owners are comfortable with um, and that they can keep doing. So on top of the, the nutraceuticals and any other modality or acupuncture, what do you recommend for the pet owners to do at home? Because they usually feel good if they can help in a yeah. different way as well. So what, what do you usually recommend? Mm. Well, I, I start by sending them home to doggy-proof the house like you would if, you know, your great-grandmother was coming to visit, <laughs> non, non-slip flooring, yeah. ramps instead of stairs, comfortable, supportive orthopaedic bedding, um, checking their temperature preference, making sure they're not cold, they're not hot, Uh, keeping the temperatures quite neutral, trimming their toenails and trimming the fur under their feet can help a lot with mobility because they're not skating around in socks when the fur between the pads is too long. Uh, Old yoga mats cut up and put around their bed or around their food and water bowls to help them. A nightlight at night so if they do wake up, they're not disorientated and confused. Um, so there's a lot that they can do just in terms of modifying the house and their environment, stairs and so on, or supportive harnesses. There's different harnesses you can get that have got a handle over the shoulders and over the pelvis to help with getting them up and down the stairs. They can't right. be carried. So these sorts of modifications. And then when we do body work, we are often teaching them massage techniques and using essential oil massage uh, oils to help relax the muscles because, as we know, pain and chronic pain 
isn't just step, uh, originating in the joints. You've got all that soft tissue surrounding the joints and there's going to be a significant portion of the pain coming from the soft tissue inflammation and spasms. So a lot of pets and cats included are really responsive to massage and it can really help with their mobility and keeping the muscles supple and uh, also enhancing the human-animal bond in their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. So things like that. Then the clients, like, as you say, they like doing things. They like being part of the, the treatment program. And um, now you touched on cats as well because um, I usually think about when we're talking about arthritis and um, the pet parents um, helping and massaging the pet, I, I just think dog. <laughs> the cats yeah. don't come to, to my mind straight away. Mm. Um, so, and you were talking about owners massaging uh, the cats. So do you feel like they, that's quite an easy thing for them to do as well? Depends on the cat. Some cats you'd lose your little finger if you tried <laughs> to massage them and some come asking for it. So but the dogs can be similar. It, it is variable. But in general, to a certain degree, most cats will tolerate some form of physical therapies, whether it's just brushing yep. and brushing can stimulate the cutaneous blood flow mm -hmm. and um, in, improve the circulation to the muscles or light therapy. So we have a lot of electromagnetic um, devices that they're pulsed electromagnetic frequencies that can help with right. kind of pain management. So they alter the nitrous oxide levels in cells and can downregulate neural um, uh, triggering and inflammation. So they're great for cats because you don't actually have to touch them. Mm. You just put the device near them or shine it on them or put it under them and turn it on and away they get a treatment at home. So they're really useful. I find cats really responsive to acupuncture as well. So, you know, people say, how do you acupuncture cats? <laughs> sometimes easier than dogs, you know. And we have acupuncture lasers that we can use if they don't tolerate the needling. But I find most cats tolerate the needles. You can get away with it around it around them <laughs> in the end of the day and, and get it done. Mm. And I suppose it all can depend on the level of pain that they're in. I suppose pets that are uh, um, suffering more with pain might not enjoy being touched as much. That's right, yeah. So you've got to do a bit of training with the owners that you don't want to inflame things. You, you just want to do it within what the animals will tolerate and they will tell you if it's too much or they've had enough. Yeah, yeah. You're not shy about rack, rack off. That's <laughs> 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 enough. <laughs> but yeah, people don't perceive of cats as being um, uh, geriatric animals that need treatment often. They just think, mm. oh, it's getting old. Cats just sleep all day anyway. That's just what they do. Mm, but they... it's not, actually. You know, that's one of the signs. Cats are prey animals, so they will hide and they'll curl up and sleep or, or not move much. And, and that can be a signal that there's something wrong. Exactly. They're really good at hiding their, yeah. their symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. And they respond really well to all these therapies, as I said, as well. And we've got patients in their 20s that are still having a good quality of life. In so their 20s, did you say? Yeah. Oh, 21, wow. 22. Hmm. Yep. Did a dental on a 20-year-old cat the other day. Wow. So, you know, age isn't so much the barrier anymore it's you've got to look at the cat and their health status and um you can always do something to improve on it hmm. what about 
I suppose when they get to sort of the end stage of um, life, for example, when they when they have cancer and you're trying to keep them comfortable and just doing palliative care, um, do you, you take the same approach? Similar, yeah. So in, in a lot of Asian medicines and these ancient medical philosophies, you're trying to find balance in the body. So you're not treating a pathogen or a disease process. You're actually looking at where there's imbalance in the body and you're trying to bring it back into homeostasis. So whether they have an incurable disease or they're two years old and bounding around chasing a ball, you're still trying to bring that body into homeostasis and that helps the body to regulate itself and and not exhibit symptoms. It is harder, of course, in the (laughs) 16-year-old dog dying of lymphoma than the two-year-old puppy running around chasing a ball, but that's still the underlying philosophy is there. Then we're also looking at, well, what symptoms are causing them to have a, a less than ideal quality of life? And it's not always pain, and that's something we just fixate on. Are they in pain? Yeah. But it could be nausea. It could be anxiety, it could be um, gut issues, it could be toileting issues, it could be a rotten tooth, you know, even though they're dying of cancer, if they have a rotten tooth causing pain, that's what you've got to address. Um, So there's, you're still looking at your veterinary training and what are the symptoms, but also looking at the deeper level of what's out of whack and what do yeah. we have to try to balance. And I suppose for that you really need to have a good understanding um, and get a really good history from the pet owner as to what the normal usual behaviour of that pet is yeah. and what is different and what's really affecting its um, quality of life. Um, you know, I've heard pet owners, you know, when they say, oh, my dog, you know, or my cat is fine, um, it's, I don't think it's in any pain, but it, it's just not eating. Mm. And I think, well, it's not fine. The fact that it's not eating, um, yeah, you know, right. it's indicative that there's something going on, but they don't necessarily see it. But you just have to look at all those factors and symptoms and work with that. So I suppose when when you practice, you're really looking at each case individually. Correct, yeah. And that's why you can't do it in a 10-minute consult. The sort of medicine we're talking about, practicing integrative medicine, geriatric care, palliative medicine, takes time. Time to get a full history, time to review the pet's clinical records and pathology results from its whole life, really. And and time to discuss what it's like at home, what's happening in its world behaviourally, physically, what's the diet, what the owners are doing at home, what other pets are there, how that's impacting on them. There's so many factors. Has a new family moved in next door with a cat that's coming into your cat, your patient's yard and terrorising it at night and nobody knows and that's causing yeah. it stress-related cystitis. You know, it takes time to come up with a full good history to get a sense of the big picture of what's happening for that animal. And with these patients that you get presented with that are older, do they usually come to you after they've had a, 
a diagnosis, let's say, of arthritis, or do they just come to you first, you know, and say, my dog is getting older, I want to know if there's anything that I can do for them? Hmm. We have a mix of both. With our clinic, we have a great clientele, people that bring their puppies with us and then stay throughout the whole journey of that animal's lives. And then people who have reached the end of conventional veterinary medicine and been told, well, we have nothing else to do or offer to you, you'll have to euthanize your pet. And they're not mm. willing to accept that. And they're looking for other alternatives and everything in between. So people who have had a life um, experience for themselves in their own health and then found some benefit from acupuncture and then gone, oh, oh, that really helped. Maybe we can do something similar with my pet. And then they look around or Google and find someone that they think fits their health philosophy and come along. So it's, it's a combination, but we do get a lot of referrals for cancer, either because people don't want to or can't afford chemo, yeah. which can run into the you know tens of thousands of dollars and mm. with chemo and radiation and CTs and so on. And so... They also don't want to euthanize, but they don't want to go down the chemo path for whatever reason, or they have um, young kids in the house, so they don't want cytotoxic drugs around the young yeah. kids, for example, or, or for whatever reason. They just want an in-between option. Yeah, they mm -hmm. want to still do something. And um, and then we have patients that do both. They want to hedge their bets and, and try everything. So they'll do chemo and come to us for help with control of the side effects as well as the whole integrative approach to improving the health and treating the cancer. Because what we're doing is also killing cancer cells. It's just doing it in a different way that's not, not necessarily cytotoxic to the organism yeah, as well as the cancer cells. <laughs> <laughs> so what we find with our approach to cancer treatment is that the quality of life of the animal goes up from mm -hmm. even before when they were diagnosed with cancer. Oh, okay. so a common thing I hear from my clients is, ah, oh, he's healthier than he was before he got cancer. I wish we'd come to you earlier. We could have prevented this. I suppose if things are progressively slow, they they don't notice it until, you know, their pet is feeling better and they're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, but also we're changing things like their diet and their um, contact with chemicals and, and a lot of the very heavy um, pesticide uh, chemicals and bringing the body back into balance, as yeah. I said before, achieving homeostasis in the body. Mm -hmm. If they, From a Chinese medicine point of view, if they have a, a blood deficiency, we're using blood tonifying herbs and, and points, acupuncture points. And so all those niggly, low-grade, crampy muscles and tendons they've always had or the dry skin that they've had because of the blood deficiency have been addressed. And so their skin improves and that low-grade sort of aches and pains and stiffness when they get out of bed is gone because we've brought the body back into balance. Well, I, I, I think when my cat starts getting older, I might um, have <laughs> bring him to you for a consult. He's very welcome. <laughs> He's middle-aged now, but now I'm thinking, ah, oh, okay. Oh, that's I when think. to start. <laughs> that's the time to start. <laughs> oh, we can have a chat offline about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's been such an interesting um, chat, uh, Catherine. Um, so we're coming close to time now. Is there anything else that um, you'd like to share with us before we go? I think what 
the veterinary industry is slowly learning is that the majority of people in Australia and around the world have tried nutraceuticals and traditional medicines or herbal medicines for themselves and experienced benefit of the, from them. And there's just this huge, huge growing body that's, that's doubling every year of research, science-based, evidence-based research into the not just the efficacy of these products, but mm-hmm. the pathways and the mechanisms by which they work. So there's, there's no basis and foundation anymore to say, oh, I don't believe in herbal medicine. It doesn't work. That's just ignorance and, yeah. and, and untrue. And you only have to search PubMed for five minutes to found thousands of peer-reviewed articles on all of these medicines. So the demand from the public is there, yes. both in the integrative medicine and, and things like natural diets as well, getting away from the processed food diets. And so the demand is there and people are seeking us out because we advertise that we service that demand and we can't keep up with the numbers of people yes. that are looking for this sort of service. So the veterinary profession is is slowly transitioning and people are, are, are through their own health experiences as well going, oh, I'd like to learn about acupuncture. So they'll enrol in a course and start using it, which is great. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to um, have a chat with you and learn about your career and all your um, research that you've done. So thank you very much. You're very welcome, Trish. It was lovely to talk to you. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Trish Santos-Smith. If you enjoyed our chat with Dr. Catherine Schutzer today, then please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review. 